Are you a Dragon Boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon-fiber Dragon Boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the Dragon Boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Kim Shun is my guest on this episode. She was diagnosed in 2016 at the age of 45 with stage 3B inflammatory breast cancer. Kim talked about her course of treatments, the complications from her treatments, and being diagnosed with stage 4. Kim shared her experience of finding her passion in fly fishing during a retreat with Casting for Recovery and how she uses it not only to support her own well-being, but to share it with others to help them through a trying time. Fly fishing is a way for Kim to remember to live in the moment. Take a listen in as Kim shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Kim Shun. She was diagnosed in 2016 at the age of 45 with inflammatory breast cancer, which was initially at stage 3B. Um, so welcome to the show, Kim. It's nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I'm just going to share that, you know, we know each other. Um, you had briefly lived in Arizona for the time that I knew you. Um, and then you've moved off to beautiful Colorado. Um, you know, but I have um, had the opportunity to meet you a couple of times. Um, so that's the connection that we have. Yes, I was born and raised in Arizona and then just recently moved to Colorado within the last two years. Yes. Well, and I see all of your photos on Facebook and they are beautiful. Oh, thank <laughs> so you. I'm it's jealous. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your um, diagnosis. So the things that I know about inflammatory breast cancer is that they don't present in the same way that like a ductal carcinoma or lobular um, carcinoma might present with like a lump. So how did you find, you know, what was going on for you that kind of set off the alarm bells that maybe you needed to have something checked out? 
honestly, it was um, a, a surprise. I had never heard of inflammatory breast cancer. Um, I do have a very close friend and my mother who had gone through early stage breast cancer. So I was aware of, you know, self-checking and, and all of the typical find a lump, um, any abnormality type symptoms that I did not present with. I was very active um, at that time and noticed um, basically when I, I typically wore sports bras to work out, but if I wore a regular bra, and this is going to sound really silly, um, my left breast, which I had had implants and um, a, a lift and augmentation after I finished having children at the age of 34. So it had been about 10 years and my left implant seemed to have shifted to where when I wore a regular bra, it didn't really sit right. Um, and they really had, you know, been symmetrical and perfect after my plastic surgery 10 years prior. So I had initially thought that it had been 10 years and my implants maybe um, just needed to be replaced that maybe I had, um, acquired some scar tissue that maybe shifted my implant over. Um, I had no other symptoms other than that. Wow. That actual, um, presentation. So that was my, my worry was that my implants needed to be replaced and I just needed to, 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 to venture in that aspect. Um, but once, and that makes sense, um, sorry to interrupt, but that makes sense because, you know, it's typically what we have heard is, you know, they have a shelf life of about 10 years. So, you know, I would imagine that it wasn't necessarily something that kind of, you know, threw up the alarm bells immediately. Um, just maybe that you needed to have that, you know, redone. Right. Makes sense. So, yeah, so I did, um, you know, probably within nine months of really initially noticing that initial change, I went and saw my plastic surgeon um, who who did my breast reconstruction 10 years prior and told him just those details. And he took some pictures. And while he was taking the pictures, he pointed out a dry area of skin um, underneath my left breast, which I typically wouldn't have been able to see because I had, you know, double D's that I didn't really look, you know, on the underside of often. And he just asked me, and you know, generally he said, how long have you had this patch of dry skin? And I thought about it and that answered, well, I think it's just from wearing sports bras and sweating. <laughs> and and he said, oh, okay. And it, we really didn't think anything about it. So he took some pictures. Um, and then at the end of our conversation, he said, you know, before he would feel comfortable doing any kind of surgery, he wanted me to have a ultrasound and a mammogram. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Good for him. I mean, really, because, um, you know, what you were talking about was, well, it's just my sports bra. You know, he noticed something, mm-hmm. but you were, you know, kind of like, well, you know, it's probably just my sports bra, no big deal. Um, but really good for him for, you know, just saying, ah, you know, maybe we need to, um, you know, look at something to see if they're, you know, maybe they would have done a mammogram and an ultrasound anyways. I'm not sure, rather than go into surgery first, but really good for him for, you know, taking that initial step to do that. Absolutely. He, he, he really prompted the the process because I, even after that conversation really did not think anything was wrong. And, um, 
did not go out and immediately have a breast, you know, didn't go out and have it done. I didn't have the the mammogram or the, the ultrasound immediately. So it took him, um, his office following up with me three months later and saying he really wants these results. Why haven't you done it? And had they not done that, I'm not sure I would have done anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, really genuinely, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they followed up um, because, yes. you know, we have a tendency to do that, you know, especially when we don't expect that it's going to be anything, you know, it's very easy yeah. to kind of push it off to the wayside and, you know, go back to life. And, um, but really, you know, the fact that they followed up with you is um, amazing. It was, it, 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 that is what catalyst this whole, you know, me finding out what was wrong and, and actually getting into treatment right away. Um, had I waited much longer, I, I, I'm not sure the results would have been, um, as good as they have been and they aren't good. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you eventually go and you have the mammogram and the ultrasound and I would assume at that point they saw something. Well, honestly, I went, um, I, I had to go. So the process to get a mammogram and an ultrasound, you don't just get to go do it. I had to go to my primary care doctor. I was very healthy, uh, had no health problems, had not seen a doctor for any reason in some time. So I needed to go to my primary care and follow the protocol for insurance purposes. And in doing so, the uh, physician's assistant that saw me initially to get the referral to get those procedures um, noticed the symptoms of inflammatory breast cancer at that appointment had a doctor come in the room and I, I, I never actually got to get that ultrasound <laughs> and a mammogram. They sent me the next day oh, to wow. a breast surgeon who performed a skin punch biopsy um, because inflammatory skin cancer infiltrates the skin level. Um, they were able to perform that skin punch biopsy on a Friday and I knew on Monday that it was positive. Wow. That's a quick turnaround. And I mean, I can't even imagine the thoughts going through your mind in thinking, you know, I'm just here to get a referral to go get a mammogram and an ultrasound. Right. Um you know, and then all of a sudden it just quickly shifts to something completely different. Yeah, it was quite a whirlwind. And I honestly had a very hard time trusting in the medical field that I wasn't being, um, it wasn't being exaggerated that I had never heard of inflammatory breast cancer. And I found that to be very unsettling that I could have something that was potentially life-threatening going on and I had never even heard about it. And having known people that have had breast cancer still not know about it. Um, and, and no one I knew knew about it. I would ask my friends and my family and they thought they were like, I've never heard of that. So it was very discerning at the time because I really didn't know what to believe. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's and, and that's the reality is, you know, we don't you know, I even being in the breast cancer world for 13 years, you know, inflammatory wasn't one of the ones that I had ever heard of. Right. Didn't know about it. Um, you know, so if somebody had ever come to me, you know, seeking advice, which happened often and said something about inflammatory breast cancer, I would have to Google it to find out if it was right. actually true. Right. And that is now my life motto to people is to please Google inflammatory breast cancer and tell somebody else to do the same because yeah. it could save someone's life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So from, you know, what is the, um, you know, we had talked about, you know, at the top of the podcast and in the introduction that you initially started out at 3B. Um, 
you know, and that's typical for inflammatory because it it's um, not easily recognizable and presents, you know, differently. So it's usually found at later stages. Um, so what is, you know, what was your protocol in terms of treatment for the breast cancer? So initially, um, the protocol for stage 3B was to have uh, immediate chemo infusion chemotherapy, um, followed by a radical double mastectomy, followed by um, radiation. And during um, the time that I was having chemotherapy, I actually had to, because of medical insurance protocol, still go through the ultrasound, the um mammogram process I still had to have a biopsy done of my lymph nodes oh my gosh prior yeah I'm this sorry. Was all required <laughs> required by insurance That's um, insane. I had to go through all of it and and during those that process I had to have the CTs the bone scans um, an MRI all of it and in doing so they did find um what they assumed from the CT to be sclerotic lesions in my sternum and my ribs at the, at that time. Which would put you really at a stage four. Right. So um, we, we stayed on the stage three protocol because stage four protocol is not to do um, the infusion chemotherapy not to do the radical mastectomy, it probably would have just been radiation and oral chemotherapy treatment as a palliative care, um, not a curative care. So I stayed on the stage 3B regimen until after the mastectomy, um, which was, I started, I started chemotherapy in October 2016, finished it, had a mastectomy in May of 2017 and had the, um, had a, had a biopsy of my sternum. Shortly thereafter, I threw a blood clot in my lung, had a pleural effusion that landed me in the emergency room. And the emergency room oncologist saw the lesion in my prior CT scans and said, I really think you need to biopsy that. And so we did in the emergency room. Oh my gosh. Um, did a biopsy um, of my sternum at the time of my pleural effusion. And then... Um, then restaged to stage four at that time. Okay. So did they still do the radiation? Like they I mean, did, well, they attempted to. So because okay. I had inflam inflammatory breast cancer spreads similar to cotton candy. So oh, I had a pretty yeah. large mass, um, on my left side. Um, my lymph nodes were already, um, affected. And so my biopsies for my lymph nodes were positive for the same type of cancer that my, my, um, breast cancer pathology was. So they knew it had already spread. And then the biopsy of my sternum was also the same pathology as well. So they did decide to do the radiation and include my sternum. Um, and then all the way over into my lymph nodes, unfortunately, um, my heart was affected by the radiation, so I was unable to complete um, all 30 treatments and only got to do about half of them and ended up in the hospital three different times with heart problems. So, oh, uh, yeah, so it didn't really happen to completion, but I did, they did attempt it. Right, right. Yeah. And did you say that you still had the mastectomy? 
I did. So after chemotherapy, I had the, the radical mastectomy and then um, five days after the mastectomy, I had a pleural effusion, which then okay. landed me in the hospital. And that's when we did the biopsy of the sternum. Okay. And then was there, you know, what was the conversation? Did they suggest reconstruction? Did they suggest staying flat? Like what were their recommendations? And it was a very trying time because, um, I had been with MD Anderson Cancer Clinic in in Arizona for my initial treatment of chemotherapy. When I had the mastectomy, um, because of financial issues, I was already in about $10,000 in debt at the time of my mastectomy. I moved in with family and took a leave of absence from work at that time and switched to Arizona Oncology. And that oncologist um, had a very different mindset of... Um, the reality of my situation and he, you know, the research that's been done on inflammatory breast cancer is not very positive as as far far as finding effective treatment. So what I had done um, may or may not have helped. And there really wasn't a lot of options for me at the time. So reconstruction was at my discretion. It wasn't, um, it wasn't encouraged just because in order to be on chemotherapy, my blood count would be too low to have any surgeries. Okay. So I had to hold off. Um, number one, initially because of the radiation, I wouldn't have been able to do right. Do it for a year. So I had a year of um, oral chemotherapy. I did some injections for their infusions for the bone cancer Um things like that for a year and really didn't have any improvement. Um, my, my tumors were still growing and that new lesions were popping up everywhere. Um, while I was on all of, you know, the treatments that, that, that they thought may help really didn't. So after a year of doing all those treatments, I decided that I was not happy, um, with the results of my mastectomy. I, I, and I didn't, I, I wasn't happy with myself, my own self image. So I did have reconstruction, okay. um, after that, but it was not successful. So I ended up having 13 surgeries over oh my gosh. 14 months to try to fix it. And it, and it's, it's manageable now I've accepted it is what it is. And, um, and I'm more happy with the quality of my life versus, you know, having perfect boobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it's, um, I feel like everybody's always in a different space in terms of reconstruction and, you know, just where we are in life. And, um, you know, for some people, they're just like, I don't really care. And, you know, for me, I was kind of the same way with, you know, the same way that you were in terms of, you know, I wanted to feel like I was still whole and I still, you know, I needed that confidence and, um, you know, yeah, but I am so sorry that you had to go through 13 surgeries in 14 months. Yeah, it was pretty much a surgery every month. I did have a lot of fat grafting. So I would say seven or eight of those surgeries were just going in and having, you know, modifications done and, and extra fat grafting and things to try to um, even them out. I just had such a, a response to the radiation and um, there was no way to try to make them similar um, because my skin just wasn't as elastic and just had a lot of problems. So in hindsight, I will say, I wish I could have 
been confident enough to just go flat. Um, I think, you know, just in hindsight, I, I wish I could have been that strong because, um, it's not, I'm not comfortable. I I look better, but I'm not comfortable. The implants are very uncomfortable. My skin is, you know, very affected. Um, having that many surgeries, my skin stopped healing at the the last few. So, you know, it just, uh, my scars didn't heal well because I just had too much damage to them. So in hindsight, I would say, I wish I would have been more self-confident to just not go through that process. (laughs) Well, you know, and Sometimes we just have to meet ourselves where we are in that moment. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, hindsight is always so amazing <laughs> and, you mm-hmm. know, just so spot on with where we wish we would have been. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, we are where we are in the moment that we're in and we just have to meet ourselves where we're at. And, um, you know, it's it's really easy to look back and say, well, I wish I would have, could have, should have. Um, you know, done that. So, yeah. um, so at this point, um, you know, now you're living in Colorado. Um, you know, how are, how are things for you currently? Are you still on, you know, any kind of oral chemo doing any, um, you know, any care at this point? So at this point, um, things have changed greatly in the last year. I came to Colorado off and on two years ago. Uh, My daughter, my eldest daughter lives here. So I was able to come and visit and really started looking into alternative treatments. Um, Nothing radical, but just some high vitamin C infusions, uh, a lot of cannabis um, inquiries about the effects of cannabis on not only cancer, but in inflammatory processes within our body. So a lot of diseases are actually caused by inflammatory processes. Right. So, um, so what in my investigations and just really researching a lot of it, um, I ended up moving to Colorado in April of last year. And since then, um, as of December, I went on hospice in home hospice care. So I am still able to do alternative treatments that make me feel better, that maybe boost my immune system a little bit um, and try to reduce some of the inflammation that's going on in my body. But um, because my cancer uh, is doesn't really react, you know, isn't really reacting to the oral chemotherapy that I had done previously, my only options were to either re- biopsy um, my largest tumors and see if they had mutated and would be um, treatable by maybe immunotherapy or some other type. But um, I decided to not do that because I just feel like once you're at stage four and it's, it's, it's traveled where it's, it's going to travel and, and it's going to do what it's going to do. And, and the effects of chemotherapy Um, and the effects of immunotherapy, if I even qualified, um, number one, I don't know, I would be able to afford it and I would never want to put my family through that financial stress. And number two, I don't know that I would be enjoying the quality of life that I currently have. Um, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm pretty healthy. I have, I have white blood cells. (laughs) I can be out in public and not worry about getting sick. Um, I enjoy being physically active. So I'm able to go out and do what I can do to feel good and 
um, still get some exercise and be outside. And uh, I'm not sure I would be able to do that if I was still um, trying to treat an incurable cancer. Right. Well, and one of the things that I love so much is, you know, I, I, see you on Facebook. And I, I know that, um, you know, you truly are out there, you know, just enjoying life. And, you know, I exactly what you said in terms of sometimes it's more of the quality of life um, than anything else. And, you know, I, I see your photos, you are out there involved in fly fishing, <laughs> um, yes. which is very fascinating to me. Um, you know, so I, I would definitely like to chat about that real quick. But, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm not in that situation. I don't know, but I know that everybody's circumstance is different and, you know, people just have to make the decisions that are right for them. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the fly fishing, because I know that this is one of your passions and I know this is, um, you know, one of the things that you love to do and you talked about it being therapeutic before we started recording. So tell me how you even got involved with fly fishing and um, why it's so therapeutic for you. Sure. Well, you know, I, I was an outdoors girl before I knew I had cancer. So I was an avid hiker. I loved being outside um, just in nature was just very therapeutic for me anyway. But um, I was presented with an opportunity to go on a retreat with Casting for Recovery, which is a very well-known organization that takes women with all stages of breast cancer on fly fishing retreats. Yeah, we've had them on the podcast. Yeah, so I was presented with that opportunity and it was in Colorado and um, I, I don't know that I would have accepted the opportunity other than they had a, a metastatic breast cancer retreat. Yes. So all of the, all of the women that went on the retreat I went to were all stage four and I thought it was really an opportunity for me to meet other women um, that were going through similar situations that I was because not a lot of people can relate right. um, if you're not in this you know, if you don't have this diagnosis, it's hard to even imagine what the emotions and the challenges are. So, um, so I went in September of 2019, I went to Shawnee, Colorado at North Fork Lodge, which was literally heaven on earth, a five-star resort in the middle of the mountains with its own private river. Wow. And sounds like heaven on earth. Yes. Um, at first I thought, you know, well, the fishing, fine, but I was really in it to meet these women and, and, um, gain a new perspective on, on how to deal with this diagnosis. And at the end of it, it was three days. And at the end of it, I was hooked. literally. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love that so much. And so from that, I mean, now you are like you are a fly fisher woman. Yeah. Yeah. So I took it very, um, you know, seriously in that I wanted to find out why, you know, what, what was, what was the catch? What, what was it for me individually so that I could, you know, help other people and, and know that if you have to sit at home and you don't have an outlet, um, when you have a, 
you know, a terminal illness of any kind, um, it's very saddening and it's um, very hopeless. So to, to have something to look forward to that gets you out in nature, um, you know, out in the sunshine and appreciating God's grace um, at the, at its finest was, was the huge opportunity for me. Um, the physical part of it is great for my lymphedema. The casting motion um, really does help you, uh, rid the fluids from lymphedema, which is very similar to rowing. Um, and then the people, you know, it just is a great community of people that are very similar in loving the outdoors and being involved in conservation efforts and helping others. There's Project Healing Waters and there's, you know, there's several organizations that really utilize fly fishing um, to help people going through, you know, something difficult. So it's kind of a, a win-win situation for me. Not only does it help me personally, but it also helps me feel like I'm, I'm giving this to other people and awakening that part of their life, maybe in a very trying time. So I couldn't feel more blessed. I have a family that's very supportive. I have all the gear. I, I know. <laughs> I make my own flies now. So it's, it's a hobby that keeps me busy while I'm home. And it's a hobby that gives me something to look forward to. Um, often, you know, I can go fly fishing multiple days of the week if I'm feeling well enough. So I average once or twice a week and, and it, um, it's great. I love it. I love it. I mean, I've, I have never done it. Um, I did apply for one of the retreats, but did not get selected. And then of course, you know, everything kind of went to a very quick halt, um, with everything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I hope to one day have that experience. I mean, it seems very calming. Um, you know, the water for me is a very tranquil place, um, no matter where that is. Um, so, you know, I, I love seeing your pictures, um, you know, as you share them, but, you know, just the fact that it's, I love that you went there with the whole idea of connecting with the women and not really so much Mm -hmm. interested in the fly fishing and you walked away with a new hobby. I did. It's, it's amazing. It's really a lesson in um, being in the moment, I think is the biggest takeaway for me with fly fishing. It's very technical. There's a lot of things that you can think about and, um, you know, I think it just fits my personality as far as wanting to do things well and learn all the different facets of it. But it very, it very much teaches you to live in the moment often. And I think when you have a, a terminal illness, you forget to live in the moment. You're always thinking about what's going to happen next and how are you going to prepare? Right. And it's very important to to stay in the moment and just enjoy life, you know, not, you know, there's a lot of things that tell us not to worry about tomorrow, um, just to live in it for today. And that's very, very true. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I think it's probably the perfect place to end, um, our, our podcast recording. Um, you know, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and, um, you know, making the time to, to be with me, um, to be able to do that. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I think it's wonderful that you're doing this. Thank you for listening to this episode of behind the pink ribbon. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe. 
If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.